0: Hi
1: there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. I just finished talking with Barack Kushner about his book, Slurp, A Social and Culinary History of Ramen, Japan's Favorite Noodle Soup. This was published with Global Oriental Press in 2012. Now, ramen is something that legions of students and late-night eaters and drinkers are probably familiar with in its instant form, right? We've got our styrofoam container with dried uh, crispy noodles inside that you add hot water to in a spice packet, and boom instant, sort of nutritious, filling, cheap food right there. Those of us who are perhaps lucky enough to have traveled around Japan or sort of gone to noodle shops outside of Japan may be familiar with its sit-down, sort of freshly made version, the bowl of some sort of meat broth with noodles and toppings on top. Regardless of which form you are familiar with of this culinary item, What you'll find in this book, and this again comes out in the course of our conversation, is much, much, much more than merely a history of noodles or a history of a a given individual food item. This is a book whose story spans many, many, many years and many local regional contexts. It's a story of the kind of, the, the different ways that the possibility of even conceiving of a context in which you would eat alone, perhaps at night, outside of the home, could emerge in a particular place at a particular time. So this is a history of much, much more than simply noodles, much, much more than ramen, although fans of, or people who are sort of just interested in food history will find much here that's not only really interesting and specific to ramen as an object, both cultural um, and material, but also really funny. Kushner is uh, very much a, a, a very um, lively and very fun historical writer, and parts of the book are really, really hilarious. And so if you're interested in not just a well-written and really interesting story that's very beautifully illustrated, but also this a story written by someone who clearly enjoys what they're doing and has a lot of fun with it and thus makes the story really fun for the reader, then this is a book for you. It was really fun to talk with him about it, and I hope you enjoy. We are here today to talk with Barack Kushner about his book Slurp! Exclamation point! So, Slurp! Emphatically, a social and cultural history of ramen, Japan's favorite noodle soup. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Barack, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you. So, Barack, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of modern Japanese history in general, and then we'll, we'll get to the topic of the book in particular. What so <laughs> I know. The oh, longer we question. spend in our field, right? The harder it is to answer that. But
0: that's right. The longer it was uh before. Initially I think I oh well I, I in university I started with physics and then I realized I wasn't a very good student and I kind of slowly moved into French history because I found that uh a bit easier. And I was gonna continue in, in European history, but I realized that one had to be very adept and uh, have numerous European languages when competing with uh, people who were born in France or Germany or, or Spain. And I had always wanted to see East Asia. So I guess a combination of fear of not being any good in European history and interest in seeing a part of the world that I had never been exposed to until about the age of 25 took me toward East Asia. And I just ended up in Japan first because Tiananmen Square had happened, and getting to China was a bit difficult in uh, 1990. And then once uh, you get to Japan, uh, you get sucked in with the language and the history and the culture. It's very different. And as um, a guy from uh, southern New Jersey, it was a world – a very different world, and – full of food i didn't like and a language i didn't understand and i found it a huge challenge and i would say also probably another reason that many people might uh, forget as academics is a lot of us have very large egos even though we try to keep them in check and uh i think being a uh, an asianist is very good for someone with a big ego because it deflates your ego constantly <laughs> uh because you always have to you're always challenged with the language uh, and the background that you don't know, and uh, that you know, it's kind of it's a challenge that never goes away. It, it was fun, and then there, I mean, we'll get onto this later, on, and kind of why specifically that took me into uh, belatedly into ramen, but there is a is a connection there, and, and I think East Asian studies is um, a career in many aspects, regardless of one does history or politics or science, that keeps giving. It's it's a field that's growing. We don't know much about it. Not a lot has been written in English, and that can be very exciting for someone starting out in a, in a new career as well. And so, all it kind of the field seemed open. Opportunities were there. Uh, people along the way said, "Sure, why don't you come study with us?" And they they gave me scholarships, and uh, that that seemed to be kind of a neat way to go.
1: And we'll—I'll um, ask you about this in a couple of moments when we when we get there. But one of the really interesting things about the book, about the narrative and the methodology, is that you're you're very, or you seem to be very careful to weave your own experiences and your own um, kind of not only ethnographic but also biographical experience with the various topics that kind of constellate around the central topic of ramen into this story. So this actually becomes um, a, a kind of set of issues or a set of questions that's not only about the biography of the author sort of as author, but that also becomes a really interesting set of touchstones in the narrative
0: thanks i, I had uh, <laughs> I think that's ultimately what happened this was a difficult this was a difficult project for me to write and i think I'm glad that you appreciated that angle. It did make it difficult with some publishers. Uh, to pick up the book because of that very reason. I think there's a real divide in the market between kind of trade and academic. And in pure trade, you're often talking about yourself and a bit about the content. And in pure academic, putting oneself into the book is kind of seen as a no-no. So went through a number of iterations to get there, and along the way – did not necessarily gain the approval of a number of publishers, but I'm I'm pleased with the final product, and I'm happy to hear at least that that you noted that aspect of it.
1: Okay. So while we're here, why don't we just kind of stay here for a few minutes? So that um, and stay with this set of issues as a kind of set of methodological decisions as well as decisions about narration. Now, the book um, opens with your experience eating ramen. And it's the first of many, many personal accounts that are woven (laughs) throughout the narrative, including, I mean, this really wonderful story midway through the book where you are um, at a temple and the head priest sort of narrates his own personal story to you um, about eating rice at um, the house of uh, a couple with a baby and the couple sort of leaves momentarily and the baby sort of toddles in or the toddler toddles in, takes a spoon out of the rice bowl, sticks it in its diaper and then puts it back into the rice bowl. So this is sort of a, a case. I mentioned this of your narrating that carrot that were that, that person's narration of a personal story. So this really does seem to be um, a case of a really deliberate decision to, integrate both anthropological slash ethnographic and also kind of historical archival forms of narrative and forms of evidence and methodology into this book. So can you talk about that um, maybe as a way of bringing us into then Raman um, in particular, which we'll get to you next. Can you talk about that as kind of a series of decisions? How did, why did you feel that that was the way you wanted to tell this story and what kinds of challenges um, or opportunities did that uh, for you.
0: I'm not sure that it was in the beginning necessarily a specific choice for narrative. I mean the uh, the voice from the beginning was always going to be one of not pure academic a bit lighthearted. I mean after all the topic is ramen. Mm-hmm. If you if you over uh, kind of emphasize <laughs> academic aspects, I think you kind of lose focus on the topic right away. Uh, And food, obviously food can be theorized and can be made into a very pure and uh, and delicate academic topic. But because ramen interacts so much with material culture, uh, society, culinary history, but more importantly, popular culture, uh, I thought of this book as a potential. I'm not sure necessarily the ultimate price (laughs) makes it uh, purchasable by so many people. But I thought of it as a vehicle for – getting in a wide discussion of Japan, Japanese society, and Japanese history. And to do that, I felt it would be important to weave parts of my own experience in there as someone who knew nothing about uh, Japan, but also several other aspects of Japanese society. So one, how the Japanese see themselves through their own food. And that was with the various experiences, uh, both um, with people I've met, over the years uh, and stories they've relayed to me, but also uh, humor. And uh, another interest and love of mine, which is uh, what's, I guess, considered Japanese stand-up or sit-down comedy, which is Rakugo, where someone on stage tells a lot of funny stories. And when I started going to see Rakugo performances, well, maybe about uh, 16 years ago, I didn't understand them too much, but a lot of them are about food, and there's a lot of people kind of enacting eating on stage. And I thought, wow, this is really strange. I mean, you know, how often do we see comedians miming, uh, or in this case, pantomime actually, because they're using sounds, um, eating on stage? And that took me into looking at at that history. And I, there's a whole kind of combination of personal, the funny, the the social aspects, the experiential aspects that. Seem to be able to be woven into a fabric that would relate the story of, of ramen, what this food is, why it's become so popular, and what it means to Japanese society. I think also at the end of the day, I had finished a book on um, Japanese wartime propaganda, and that was fairly uh, depressing. <laughs> and I had been interested long-term in looking more at Japanese comedy and humor. I'm always, I guess... You know, one could say uh, I'm a frustrated comedian. Uh, I was I was, I was, was good in university at performing on stage but never writing my own material. And so I realized, well, this is not going to turn out as a career because if you can't write your own comedy, it's not going to work. And I thought this would be an interesting way to kind of combine looking at uh, what Japanese people felt was funny. Because as someone who enjoys humor and enjoys jokes and, uh, and I – I, I did a lot of this kind of in France and I was very interested in French comedy for a popular French comedy uh, for a while. When you come back to the States and you, and I have a very large family and they all say, oh, tell us jokes from Japan. And, you know, they'd, they'd expect to hear kind of, you know, two samurai walking down the street kind of thing. And, and you say, well, they don't really have two guys walking to a bar or why does the chicken cross the road kind of jokes. And then people say, oh, because the Japanese aren't funny. And you want to say, well, no, the Japanese actually are very funny and people pay good money to go sit all day in these theaters where they have comedic performers, but the jokes don't necessarily translate, and I thought, aha, here is perhaps one step on the road to explaining uh, Japanese humor, and I actually removed a lot of the more scandalous humorous uh, buttock-slapping stories as some of them uh, were labeled uh, from from the book because it just didn't fit in, but there's a certain element I want to get in, kind of the joy And the humor of popular Japanese culture, not just from the 20th century, but from previous times as well. And then integrate one's own experience because I think food allows one to to add a personal uh, viewpoint to the subject and then it makes more sense uh, perhaps to uh, contemporary audiences.
1: That's really interesting because not only is the first chapter, which we'll we'll actually get to in a moment, called Three Sages Walk Into a Restaurant yeah. <laughs> Noodles, um, but also the, the final um, chapter before the conclusion actually features an interview that you did with a contemporary Japanese comedian. So That's right. um yeah, so this is actually really interesting as a way to sort of trace that thread through this story, or trace that noodle rather through the story. And so which brings us to Noodles. So, yeah. how um, the book itself, um, it, you know, it's about many, many things, but the focus of the story here is on uh, a particular kind of noodle soup. So, not just noodles in general, but ramen in particular. What right. brought you here from the sort of larger topic you were working on or a set of topics around uh, World War II Japanese propaganda? Why ramen and why now?
0: Why ramen? Well, I, I hope you don't mind if I actually skip to a story in the back of the book to please explain do, please do. why ramen. And then uh, there are several reasons. I, I think the first reason, and, and I write about this incident in uh, toward the back of the book. So my, my first experience with ramen is, is not actually in, um, in that kind of monastery of noodledom that I described in the beginning. My first very A personal experience, uh, sadly, is in a town, in a building which no longer exists. Uh, It's in the the town of Yamada was pretty close to being wiped out by the tsunami that came uh, last year. And I had lived in this town, uh, lived in the town for about a year. And it's a town in Iwate in the northeast of Japan. It's where I got my first job, where I was supposed to be teaching English. The job didn't turn out too well, but I, I spent a lot of time at a temple with a lovely uh, Buddhist priest and his family, and I learned a lot from them. And Occasionally, people at the Board of Education would kind of take pity on me and take me out because I think what they failed to realize is I couldn't read anything, um, which means I couldn't read store signs to know if I was walking into a laundromat or a restaurant. Uh, I, could, I certainly couldn't read a menu, and I couldn't read any menu that that wasn't really printed either. I mean, you know, if, if it was too flowery or whatnot, the menu wasn't possible. And so I kind of went hungry a lot of times unless I went to the temple to eat. Uh, but one night, um, somebody finally took me out after we had kind of had a heavy bout of drinking at the Board of Education for some festival that I barely understood at the time, and they took me to a building that I had walked by uh, pretty much daily for several months, which had never been opened And this really mystified me because I thought for a small town, how can there be some kind of business site that's not open? And this thing was never open and there were no lights on. And I I found it kind of intriguing. It was really weird. I mean, there weren't that many buildings in town. And finally, you know, two in the morning on this one night, we we entered this establishment and it turned out to be uh, a ramen establishment. I, I learned that afterwards. I didn't really know what a ramen establishment was then. And I I would have to say that we were all feeling pretty, pretty good. You know, it's pretty cold up in Iwate in in the wintertime. And, you know, we had had quite a number of hours of of fairly robust drinking. And I don't think, at least I don't remember at this point if I'd ever had ramen before. But tucking into that hot bowl of steaming, delicious, meaty, sauced noodles at kind of 2.30 in the morning after... You know, several hours. You have to remember, kind of, you know, drinking with colleagues when you are basically illiterate in a foreign language is both entertaining but also exhausting because you have to pay attention to what's going on. You can't just chat. And it was kind of getting like a vitamin shot in the arm. It was fantastically delicious. It warmed me up. Uh, I could have gone on for hours after that. I thought, this is great. You know, what is this? And they explained it was ramen. And I thought, do you only eat this fantastically delicious dish at three in the morning after you're completely inebriated? And it turned out, no, of course, you can eat it any time of the day. But uh, for a while, I thought it was only something you could only get at this one shop. It was so magnificent. It was kind of, you know, finding a unicorn in one's garden or something. Um, and, and that kind of started me on this, you know, what is this dish? Uh, what does it mean? It's so fantastically uh, tasty and delicious. And, you know, the sad thing is, of course, that, uh, that store was uh, wiped away by the huge wave, and and the fire actually that came into the town afterwards, as was the entire center of town. Um, but so that, that's kind of my first experience, at least of, of of tasting and seeing and understanding what ramen was. And after that experience, which was in the early 1990s, I started to I studied in Japan for a while. But then I ended up traveling to mainland China for some study and touring uh, on my own and and teaching and then to Taiwan. And I was struck by the vast variety of noodle soups in China on one hand that were completely different from what I had been experiencing, what I experienced in um, Japan – and then, of course, how people identified them, whether they were ident- identified by province, whether they were identified by the way in which the noodle was boiled or pulled, or whether they're, they're, or they were identified with Japan or with China, and I found that you know very intriguing and, and again, yeah, I think you have to emphasize this is in the early 1990s uh, when this first started, so there wasn 't that much knowledge at least for non East Asians about what East Asian food was i 'd certainly had uh, Chinese food growing up, but I'd never had Japanese food. And actually, to be honest, I detested Japanese food when I first got to Japan. I thought it was horrible. I didn't like fish. I certainly didn't like sushi or sashimi. And, uh, you know, you kind of latch on to ramen because it's a meaty taste, something that you know. And, of course, I knew noodles. So we became fast friends. And I think in the background, there was always an interest in why people in Japan talked about food in a certain way as well. Um, I remember staying at the temple, the mother or the wife of uh, my friend for the first couple of days when I went over there for breakfast. It's a, a long story how I ended up eating all three meals there each day for a full year. Uh, I won't I won't bore you with that. But um, she would cook me a hamburger and then a piece of bread. And I thought, OK, so, you know, you don't want to be rude. I took it. And in her mind, that's what Americans ate every day. It was kind of, you know, they were a bread culture bread was what the Japanese call shushoku or the main kind of part of the meal and meat. And, uh, and then, you know, when the Japanese ate, I didn't understand much of the conversations at the end of the meal. They'd always say, Oh, we need a bowl of rice because we're Japanese. Um, Japanese eat rice. And I was like, yeah, but Japanese eat hotcakes or pancakes and cereal and all sorts of, yes, but we need rice. And, And over the years I began to kind of, be intrigued as how or why certain cultures identified themselves with certain patterns of eating um, that they seem to think were racially or ethnically linked to themselves. And then traveling more around East Asia, why it was that that developed one place and not the other place and really how that developed in Japan and, and what that meant as a place that had adopted a lot of Chinese culture, but also of course had supposedly Westernized very much uh, after the Meiji era.
1: Now, at least a couple of things you just mentioned um, really struck me as being um, really central to not just what's happening in this early part of the book, but throughout the book. I mean, you open um, the book with, uh, or in in the introduction at least, by taking an assumption that a lot of people might come to this topic with and posing it as a question, is ramen a Japanese food, right? And it turns out that um, that question itself is is more important than any kind of answer we might give, and the answer is much more complicated and you know t- between two and three hundred pages long and <laughs> uh, and really much more interesting right than than you might think initially um but these questions of food and identity also take us into uh chapter the first chapters of the book, in which one of the things that's happening um it, In these first chapters, you're taking us through – so the book is roughly a chronological progression, as you, I think, mentioned earlier before we started the formal interview. It's a kind of long durée history of Mm. ramen. Um, You start us off in antiquity, and the first chapters take us through – um, so the 8th to the 12th centuries, the rise of Edo, and ultimately we get to early modernity and then Meiji. But in this early part of the book, one of the really interesting things that's happening is that you're showing the, the ways that we can sort of use this case study as a way to disaggregate assumptions that we have, not just about uh, food and uh, cultural identity, but also about what the coherence of an identity Um, really means, and to sort of help us explode that. And so one of the ways that happens early in the book is that you show um, the early, and this becomes a pervasive phenomenon throughout the book, but the early history of noodles and breadstuffs in China. Now, throughout the book, um, and this is something that I'm mentioning now because you're talking about your own uh, personal experience in Taiwan, sort of brings this up as an interesting issue for me. The narrative keeps coming back to the importance of China in the history of the development of various foodways in Japan, and especially in the history of the development of this noodle soup known as ramen. Now, a major arc of the book and a major narrative kind of turns on various points of transformation in this history where China is alternately embraced and then rejected and then embraced again as a kind of touchstone for identity. So can you talk a little bit about that since it's such an important part of the book, the importance of China um, in this ongoing and sort of transforming study of foodways and ramen in Japan?
0: Uh, thank you. I, I think you've hit a, you've hit an, an interesting note, uh, and that's exactly what I was trying to. Oh, this is what I learned, in a sense. I shouldn't say I, of course, knew this. I mean, if I knew it, there wouldn't been. There's no point in, in doing the research and, and writing the book. Uh, the uh, I, I think one of the elements that we tend to, obviously, <coughs> uh, Japanese historians and Japanologists were all well aware of the deep cultural and political debt that Japan historically has to China, as many countries around China's orbit um, uh, have toward China. Of course, one of the things we forget is, of course, the debt that uh, China has to Central Asia, to Mongolia, to other elements around it, but that's that's a secondary uh, story. I was – however, be that as it may, the Japanese tend to separate their food – their culinary history from their relationship with China and the Chinese do likewise. I mean, if you, uh, you kind of read diaries, uh, mid to late 19th century diaries of Japanese traveling to China and Chinese traveling, traveling to uh, Japan, they detest one another's food. There doesn't seem to be a lot of love there uh, for the other. And so they seem rather convinced that there can be no relationship between their foods because they're so different and they they focus on different aspects. And the Chinese are, of course, very proud of their own food culture. But as I began to dig into the one particular element of ramens and ramen being born really from kind of a noodley relationship between China and Japan, I felt that I had to take a much longer approach. So as you mentioned, I mean, originally this book, Years ago, when I first started the research, was just going to be starting a ni- the nineteenth century story, and I guess partly being an historian, but partly wanting to know myself, I kept saying, "Well, what came before the nineteenth century?" And I said, "Oh, I had to go back to kind of uh, late Tokugawa Bakumatsu, late Tokugawa era." And I thought, "Well, I have to go. You know, if I don't really understand what happened in, in the Tokugawa era, I have to go back." So it kind of kept taking me back and back and back, and things really seem to start off with this flat pancake noodle thing called bing. Um, And you find bing all over China now. A lot of times it's a breakfast kind of flat pancake thing stuffed with uh, very savory uh, delicacies or just oiled on a pan. And it seemed that that kind of unrolled Over time and became longer. And through various important interactions between China and Japan, mostly Buddhist priests traveling back and forth, a whole subculture of food technology and food tastes uh, traveled mostly from China to Japan, and then, of course, around Japan. And that brings up the real interesting case of, of what happens within Japan. And I think as a modern historian, and this is probably just grew out of my own ignorance of uh, pre-modern, early modern Japanese history. But I was rather struck over the years of research for this that there was a massive divide within Japan uh, concerning taste and cuisine. And I think we tend to take for granted this kind of monolithic idea of what is Japanese cuisine today and forget about the big changes that came beforehand and this forced me to kind of think about Japan in, in a different way, to think about uh, Western Japan, the Japan the Japan that is much more uh, in geographic proximity with China, and that would be Nagasaki. And, of course, not forgetting about Okinawa and that influence. And all the exchange that went back and forth there and how, these, how food technology for milling and then for producing noodles and then for bringing in tastes and then for bringing in travelers and then students and then entrepreneurs who make these new tastes – all adds to this growth of, eventually by the early 20th century, a new product that becomes much more identified with Japan than it does with China, even though if we look at all of the virtual elements of the dish, they've all in some manner or form originated in China.
1: And in fact, you're alluding to another couple of threads that are really, really important throughout this story. I mean, you sort of um, briefly mentioned, and I'll just um, tag it for listeners, because this is another really important thread throughout the book, um, the very the strong Buddhist influence in the early history of cuisine in Japan. And that importance of um, sort of uh, Buddhist monks and Buddhist temples to this story is very, very striking. And, and that recurs throughout the book. But also the importance of these movements in creating a really interesting set of regional um, stories within this story. So the importance of local and regional histories to the emerging uh, sort of history and culture of foodways in Japan, especially um, ultimately ramen as part of that, is also a very powerful part of this story. Now, as we get into the book, uh, one of the things that happens in in the third and the fourth chapter is that we see the rise of the city of Edo and the urban culture that accompanied it, really transforming um, sort of food cultures in early modern Japan. And in in the third chapter, you also have a really wonderful discussion of the importance of Nagasaki to this story. And and treaty ports also come in later on in the story. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the importance of Edo and perhaps more broadly, the importance of the emergence of an urban culture? to um, the story of what ultimately becomes ramen. And so in what ways is that important to the story that you're telling?
0: I th- well, let, I'll start with the uh, regional local with Nagasaki and then move into, okay. I mean, the, the Nagasaki story is very interesting. I think, I mean, obviously, I think historians, uh, Japanese historians of Japan, this will be a story that's not very new. But I think for perhaps listeners or for readers who are more familiar with Uh, The slightly more monochromatic Japan that we describe in contemporary times will be surprised to learn that Nagasaki was uh, a much more international city in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries, kind of the cusp after the Civil War and then moving into the era just before uh, the the Tokugawa era in 1600. It's it's an international city. It's ruled in effect by – kind of uh, non-Japanese, and it's a major treaty port with China. And because of that, they have uh, a very large population of Chinese that over over time gets pushed into something called the Toji Yashiki, or the Chinese kind of quarters where they are somewhat quarantined uh, while they're in Nagasaki. But even that quarantine seems to have been a bit porous. Uh, And they do a heavy trade in goods. Uh, There's a lot of Chinese tourists, and there are a lot of Japanese tourists going down to Nagasaki to see the Chinese and to eat the various foods, uh, you know, tempura, castella cake, uh, pork, which generally speaking Japanese at that time thought repellent, uh, but the Chinese ate it a lot and some people kind of wanted to taste it. Now, this, of course, doesn't even get into the fact that the Dutch – or oh, The Spanish and the Brits are there in the beginning. Uh, around Nagasaki, they get kicked out. And, of course, the Dutch are there over the long term until the Meiji Restoration, and people go down to eat Dutch treats as well. So Nagasaki is kind of almost an amusement park for foreign of, of foreigners, and, and many Japanese flock there, not just to uh, learn and study uh, Western skills and Chinese skills, but also to see and experience. Uh, and this would include also the brothels, where uh, some of the... Uh, the more scandalous among the Japanese want to go to the brothels where the Chinese have visited so they can learn stories about what the Chinese are doing in the evenings. And it's this interaction leads to creating a a subgenre of Japanese cuisine, which is wholly unlike any other taste in the rest of Japan. This will ultimately feed into uh, a a pork-based ramen soup by the 20th century. But it's one of the reasons why Different parts of Japan have different tastes that have attached themselves to ramen because it's based on, on their own history and what those regions developed and who they developed uh, in exchange with. This, so th- the, the Nagasaki experience kind of pulls into the rise of Edo, which is uh, the, the shogun's capital uh, during the 250 years of the Tokugawa era, and it becomes a massive city, uh, one of the, or the largest in the world, really, uh, by the late 17th century. And urban culture becomes very important for the rise of noodle production uh, in in two ways. Uh, On one hand, uh, strangely enough, soba becomes the noodle of choice for the Japanese in one temple area. Uh, one monk in particular is so popular in making it that his uh, his leadership bans him from further production of soba because it's not seen as pious in a sense for one monk to uh, ha- attain so much profit by uh, selling soba. Soba becomes the dish of choice, but the manner in which the Edo-Edoites, the urban dwellers, eat that they're not eating in the home, that they're paying money and eating at stands, that as the rise of urban areas throughout Japan along the trunk roads progresses, that Japanese can eat out of home and eat along these trunk roads uh, becomes very important for the production of small entrepreneurs and people who will sell food items uh, al- outside of the home to pe- to laborers, uh, and others who have available and extra cash. And so that urban market, the development of the urban market, the development of local tastes that people will want to purchase along the way when they travel, and the idea that one eats out of home and eats noodles, in this case it's, it's soba during the Tokugawa period, It'll be udon, really, in in the south of Japan, but nonetheless, it's a noodley dish. That base of noodles eating out of the home and eating it at various uh, stands and kind of portable stalls becomes extremely important as we move into the early 19th century.
1: Right, and as we move into the early nineteenth century um, and, and then the late nineteenth century in the book, one of the really interesting things that you're doing is you're kind of along the way pointing out what you characterize as four food revolutions in Japan. So as we come into the next chapter, um, you talk about sort of many um, characteristics of early modern history of food in Japan and noodles, and this um, highlights or uh, along the way the, perhaps the first food revolution that you. Um, identifies highlighted. And you talk about the, a revolution emerging from the beginning of the Tokugawa era with growing markets for white rice for the upper classes. And this brings us into what you identify as the second um, food revolution, if we can sort of identify these in Japanese culinary history. And this second food revolution happened in the Meiji as part of the Meiji restoration. And that brings us to the middle of the book um, with this wonderful set of descriptions about the ways that ramen culture and food culture um, were kind of imbricated in lots of different aspects of societal and cultural change coming along with a new kind of diplomatic identity, a new kind of international or a new um, kind of frame for international relations in Japan, a new military culture. Um, And this revolution that you identify here is the rise of new imperial banquet styles during the Meiji Restoration. So this brings us into, um, again, this, this larger context that I'd love for you to talk about. You mention in this section of the book that the rise of a new Meiji imperial government, starting in the late 19th century, I think 1868, creates a need for a national cuisine. So a kind of national cuisine emerges out of this, and in particular, this national cuisine that could be used in banquets to impress international guests. So can you talk a little bit about that, sort of the general issues of the emergence of this kind of national cuisine in the context of military and diplomatic transformations in the Meiji?
0: Yeah, this is is one of the aspects that struck me. It's also one of the aspects that kind of frustrated me a bit because... I had requested several times to the uh, kunai uh, it's the uh, Imperial Household uh, Management Bureau for a menu, uh, for a set of menus to show what the Japanese were eating and kind of how they depicted it on their menus in in Mid Meiji and they said, "You know no, we hold on to this stuff and i said come on it's just it's menus you know this is, this is not going to be this is not classified material, but they wouldn't they wouldn 't give it up um, and the reason for that is it 's this fascinating element that even until today uh, the Japanese imperial household doesn 't officially serve Japanese food at its functions, it serves French food, and you know I have this this picture in the in the middle of the book of a menu that the Japanese had to transcribe basically kind of from, so they took French dishes and then they transcribed them into phonetic Japanese katakana. But of course no one understood that. So underneath that they put them in classical Chinese, but that didn't make too much sense either. So then underneath that they have to have an explanation of what it actually is in Japanese. And you're kind of looking at this menu going, what's going on? What happened? And essentially what it is, is it's, it's not just major Japan, interestingly enough. It's, it's Bakumata Japan as well. Japan, on the both sides, so the Tokugawa era Japan, late Tokugawa Japan, the shogun, uh, his party, the bakufu, are fighting for power in the late 1850s, and it's not quite sure if they're going to topple. Of course, the French, don't forget, support uh, the bakufu, and others, like the British, uh, give their talents to the uh to the imperial side that wants to restore the emperor but one of the things that japan is struggling with now is how do its high class officials meet other high class officials from foreign countries this is not a problem when japan is essentially closed off now we've there's been a, a lot of work recently talking about yes we know japan was not completely closed off during the tokugawa era the dutch were there the chinese were there but if you look at the japanese Struggling with this issue in the 1850s and the 1860s, you realize that Edo was closed off. No one was meeting with the emperor. He was kind of, you know, tucked away in a chamber in Kyoto until 1868, and very few foreign officials, if any, ever uh, got to meet with the shogun. So, when foreign diplomats uh, of a particularly high rank are coming to Japan after uh, kind of 1854. the the two big questions uh, need to be answered. A, what are they going to eat? What are the Japanese going to serve them to eat? And who are they going to eat with? And this doesn't sound like a big problem, but when you look back at Commodore Perry's, uh, the official logbook of Commodore Perry in 1853 and 1854, it's apparent on both sides that they detest each other's food. This is very similar to to the Chinese example I gave before. The Americans are very impressed with the, the meal that they gave on the uh, USS Powhatan uh, in 1854 and the Japanese write uh, that they didn't like it, and the Americans were not impressed with the Japanese food that they felt uh, was both not tasty, too fishy, and uh, the portions were too small, although each side liked the fact that the other side gave copious amounts of alcohol. And so you can really see that this could potentially turn into either A way for the Japanese to smooth over international relations, if they can get a grip on how to do it through banqueting and food. And when they travel uh, for the first time in the late 1850s and early 1860s, they're treated to these sumptuous dinners uh, throughout the U.S., throughout Europe. Uh, They're seated at tables with, oh gosh, women, and they have to chat, and it's all very foreign to them so they i they, they quickly go through a whole routine of Uh, They go to uh, Victorian London and they copy the imperial manuals and it's very, I mean, down to the the smallest points of how should the hat and coat and cane of a gentleman be taken at the door and where should they be placed? They talk about seating and protocol Uh, and then of course they talk about menu and food and at this point in time, in the mid-19th century, it's French food. It's French language for diplomacy and it's French food. And the Japanese really have to quickly learn uh, that diplomacy is not just about the language of unequal treaties and the language of law, but it is also, of course, about eating properly and the language of food and the language of banqueting. The interesting connection uh, is therefore made at the same time with this idea of national cuisine and, of course, military culture. Because what do you call what you're eating? Uh, The Japanese really didn't necessarily have a word. There there was no kind of specific terminology for Nihon-Yori or, you know, dishes had names, but one's national cuisine didn't really, because it wasn't important. It wasn't really coming into conflict or into competition with anyone else's cuisine. And this isn't an issue if you don't have a standing military army. But once you have a nation that's bounded by specific boundaries and you're interacting with other national groups and you want to demonstrate that this is or is not your food and you have a standing military that you need to feed, you begin to think a bit more differently about what they're eating. And that was the big connection, therefore, with military culture. Should the infantry be eating Japanese food, and if they were to eat Japanese food, what did that mean? Because different parts of Japan ate differently, and what they realized early on was that eating Japanese food didn't seem to give them the requisite uh, calories and uh, boost vitamins needed to become a bit, as big and strong as the Westerners they were coming into contact with at these banquets and in international exchanges, and that really scared them. And they begin to dig into this and talk about, well, are we small because that's what we've been eating? Are we weak? uh, And are we being overrun by the West because what we eat is bad or insufficient? And, And there were a lot of arguments about it on both sides.
1: And now that the, um, that image that you mention of the menu is one of many really beautiful and striking images throughout the book. There are a lot of images, some of them in full color. And so I, I tag that for listeners to be one more <laughs> argument for buying the book because it is really beautifully illustrated. Um, and the names of these, uh, menu items being a, a really interesting part of the story also goes on to be important in really amusing ways through the book. I mean, there's sort of, as we see the emergence of um, food products named for military touchstones, you describe the sort of menu creations of items like smash the Baltic fleet Memorial Togo marshmallow. Oh, I'm
0: uh, glad you got that. That is the favorite food item. Yes. I love that. I, I, want, it, but it sounds uh,
1: I want that on a t-shirt. Yes. Um, but, and, What you just mentioned, uh, with the sort of the importance of an emerging military culture and sort of food concerns related to the military. Um, highlights the importance of some major um, emergence phenomena that you um, highlight here in the book, which in this part of the book, one of which is um, the importance of meat-eating in a sort of Mm. meat-eating culture, Um, the other being these related discourses of nutrition, as you mentioned, but also hygiene. And there are some really interesting moments in this chapter, I don't know if you want to take a moment to talk about this, where we're not just talking about food history in the context of what we're putting into the body, but also what's coming out of the body. And that becomes um, a location for uh, interesting interweaving of kind of uh, excrement and other kinds of um, things that come out of us throughout the story.
0: Yeah, this is um, one of those aspects that, again, we, we tend to forget as modernists with our um, super clean toilets. And of course, when we discuss Japan and toilets, everyone knows about the the toilet spray and the heated toilet and the toilets that sing to you. So we tend to forget that in the mid and even into the early 20th century, uh, these, of course, did not exist as an anathema in Japan in a sense. Um, So let me tie in the meat-eating with that. One of the interesting aspects – Of the real change in the way Japanese eat is, of course, meat eating. Now, this doesn't deny that the Japanese ate meat over the long term. Of course, um, they always have. But it was frowned upon, and it was certainly frowned upon much more for both religious and political reasons in the upper classes. So for all intents and purposes, you have Meat eating in Japan—it's just not that prevalent, and not as much, of course, as one found in the West. And I give some interesting comparisons with the vast amounts of meat that Brits ate at various times throughout the centuries. And you know, if the Japanese compared themselves to other cultures, it wouldn't be as uh, a grotesque. Uh, Discrepancy, but of course compared to the British and the Germans with whom they want to compare themselves as uh, civilized nations in the 19th century, the gap is enormous. So what changes really at this point is that the Japanese feel that they need – well, at least some Japanese feel. Uh, some public uh, intellectuals feel that the Japanese need to change their eating habits to be big and strong like the West. And this is really where we begin to see the – the change that enables ramen to come onto the market in the 20th century. The noodle culture has been building, but it needs to marry with the meat culture because ramen noodle soup is a meat-based soup of either chicken, pork, beef, and or a combination. And uh, the Japanese begin eating more of that. It's not too tasty to them. And people remark on it. They really don't like it. Uh, And people in sailors in the Navy talk about kind of their first experience getting beef curry, where they feel that it's kind of a a grotesque mountain of some sort of uh, excrement. But the, the other half of the uh, excrement story, which I I found compelling and wanted to include uh, in this, in these chapters is that the Japanese themselves Um, are considering and examining their own uh, sort of excremental history and they remark that they need to change. So on one hand, they begin to divorce themselves from the rest of East Asia in their minds by the way in which they evacuate themselves and by the way in which they kind of um, arrange their hygiene. They want to be seen as more hygienic and therefore not, as they consider the Chinese, to be dirty and backwards. And this becomes a very important motif really up until uh, World War II. And they do this uh, in comparison with the Koreans as well. They want to set themselves apart. And they do this, uh, they start in, in the 1860s, but it continues up uh, through the all the way until the early 20th century with a series of laws about where one can defecate or urinate in the street. And I include pictures because there's a, a cartoon version of this. Obviously, not uh, a lot of Japanese were illiterate. And uh, they also, uh, strangely at times, wax poetic about their... Uh, the shape of their defecation uh, compared with the uh, shape and the sound and smell of defecation of westerners with whom they would like to uh, be placed on the same scale and they also denigrate the smell and hygiene therefore of east asia and it's it's really compelling to read through some of the memoirs of travelers in uh, Japanese travelers in Taiwan and China in the 19 teens and the 1920s where they constantly on one hand partly remark on the delicious taste and variety of Chinese food, but then at the same time will denigrate the smells around them and, uh, that garlic is an overpowering stench that they can't get used to. So they really struggle with, in some ways, again, kind of their own, this is the next step perhaps in food diplomacy. They struggle with their own rather um, kind of uniform taste in Japan that's not as exciting as what they're finding around the rest of their expanding empire. Uh, But on the other hand, they want to keep a distance from it because they want to place themselves on top.
1: Now, how do we move from this story to ultimately the story that becomes embodied in the styrofoam cup of instant ramen? Uh, now, we move here in a series of chapters that I'll kind of just highlight to so make sure that we get to that styrofoam cup, because that's the context that I'm sure many listeners have encountered ramen, if they've encountered ramen. The The book takes us through um, really a history of empire that, that from which... Ramen and ramen culture and the explosion of ramen emerges from the um, discussions about the connection between MSG and the taste of umami to the emergence of nighttime dining to the context of World War II and post-war. Now, there's a wonderful (laughs) chapter on the World War II context that really shows the ways that the war brought about some really drastic changes that set the stage, as um, as you indicate here, for major transformations in Japanese cuisine. First, it set the stage for the immediate post-war catastrophe um, that forces people to look for alternatives to a rice-based cuisine, and that really um, results in, as you mentioned, an explosion of kind of famine and hunger that sets the stage for this. It also removes many of the social divisions that had divided pre-war society. So as part of this story, um, we see along the way rice and miso soup becoming the kind of markers of Japanese culinary identity throughout the colonies and the empire in a really kind of um, interesting and oblique way, we see um, sort of the transformation to so a post-war context where there's a new kind of thinking about Japan's national cuisine. And finally, this brings us to, in Chapter 9, um, the kind of culmination of this story for, um, for the styrofoam cup, which is the ways that these ultimately feed into that, the emergence of instant ramen. So there's this situation where we're now in the post-war, the Americans are giving all this wheat Um, to Japan. So this one individual that you mentioned um, becomes the kind of focal point for figuring out the answer to, now what do we do with all the wheat that the Americans gave us? And that brings us to this story or the kind of um, almost conclusion, if not quite the conclusion, of the story of the history of ramen in Instant Ramen. So can you talk a little bit for us about Ando Momofuku and the emergence of this Um, paradigmatic um, icon of Japanese culinary culture, at least in popular culture right now, which is the bowl of instant ramen.
0: I think this might be the part that most uh, readers and listeners will be at at least somewhat familiar because although strangely, when I first gave a talk uh, about this aspect in Europe, uh, it wasn't until afterwards that someone came up to me and said, "I have no idea what instant ramen is. What were you talking about?" Wow. And uh, they're called pot noodles in Europe. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, had to, I had to suddenly there. I said, "Why well, couldn't you tell me this at the beginning of my talk? Why did you wait until the very end?" The yeah, it, it all come. I mean, one of the reasons that ramen in both its uh, kind of restaurant form and the instant form is the most uh, one can easily, the, the most, most purchased produced foodstuff on earth at this point is because of this invention that comes after World War II. Now, there's a lot of mis- there's a lot of incorrect information ar- around, uh, Ando. Momofuku. He's not Taiwanese, as some strange kind of Wikipedia sites and whatnot have. him. He was Japanese, but he grew up in part in Taiwan, in Tainan, in, in the south, because, of course, Taiwan is part of the Japanese empire. Uh, I wish I could have found out a bit more, aside from the several different biographies, and from his son's book, um, but he, at the time when I tried to get an interview with him, he wasn't uh, giving uh, that many interviews, and so I kind of had to go with published sources. According to kind of a comparison of those sources, uh, uh, as, I, as you mentioned, there is a, a production, a, a proliferation of American wheat in Japan because the Americans want to keep the Japanese from starving They realize that if the Japanese start starving, they're going to go against occupation policy. Communists could take over, they fear, and that's not a good thing. But the problem is the Japanese don't know what to do with all the wheat. The Americans actually go around and try to convince the Japanese to bake bread. That doesn't work so well, and it demonstrates a bit of ignorance on the American part because uh, most Japanese households don't have ovens. But the Japanese loved noodles. And Ando, being from an era, a Chinese area, Taiwan, of Japan, was probably in a better position to understand that than most. Uh, and he basically sets himself a task after seemingly somewhat consulting for uh, the Nutrition Bureau uh, for one of the elements of the Japanese government to find an antidote to Japanese starvation. All this wheat, what should be done with it? And he's unsuccessful for a long, long time. It's only after about close to uh, 10 years of trial and error that he comes upon a formula for turning, uh, for finding a way to keep noodles for long periods of time fresh so they can be kind of reconstituted with just hot water. And he manages to do this by... Well, I, I shouldn't necessarily reveal how he manages to do it. I'll let, I'll let people uh, read it in the book if they're so determined, but he does. And obviously, it turns into a massive seller first in Japan, but then, of course, internationally, because it's so easy. And secondly, it's what food historians call a platform food. Any taste can be essentially placed on top of it. You might want to think of it as kind of the bagel of the Eastern world. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it became a great seller, not only in all the local regions in Japan, which had different tastes, but therefore internationally um, in in the rest of East Asia and South Asia. The reason it's, it's available and becomes popular in America is because of cup noodle. Because uh, he managed he, – Ando realized – that uh, Americans didn't use the same type of bowls and whatnot and cutlery as in Japan and therefore they needed its own delivery system. And once he gets over that obstacle, another invention, uh, instant ramen is well on to dominating the world of produced foodstuffs after really uh, the mid-1960s.
1: Now, the, conclu- the, the last chapter and the conclusion of the book bring us into what happens thereafter. And there, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, um, not only in this look at ramen in popular culture do we see ramen as it's being engaged with by comedians, but you also describe um, museums of ramen, ramen stadiums, including the Ramen Philosophers Hall and the Ramen Academy, which is just fantastic, um, theme parks, manga and music, There's so there's wonderful, wonderful um, accounts here um, that I think are going to provide fodder for probably many, many um, projects after this, because it's such an inherently interesting visual and oral and um, cultural set of phenomena. Now, one of the things that I want to ask you about, though, comes and this is perhaps the last thing that I'll ask you comes in the conclusion where the story kind of looks outward um, into the the kind of future history of what happens as a result of this. And one of the really interesting directions and perhaps unexpected (laughs) directions for a culinary history um, that this study points to is a series of environmental Issues that emerge from ramen um, and ramen production in Japan and out and to outside of Japan as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? If that's something that um, that continues to interest you, the sort of what are the in- increasing global consequences of what seems like a although ubiquitous but relatively um, unproblematic popular food.
0: This is the. Outcome in a sense of what happens when, uh, when a we don't eat at home and b uh, we eat pro- uh, kind of prepackaged food with non biodegradable uh, delivery systems and that that's really it's the styrofoam bowl of cup noodle as more and more Japanese spent more time outside of the house more time on the go and uh, more time trying to find quick ways of eating savory or tasty food, uh, ramen exploded. And they weren't eating it anymore in dishes that one had to wash and keep in the cupboard. They were eating it in large styrofoam bowls that one could just throw away. And that became an enormous issue as the popularity and sales of instant ramen exploded over time. But, Japan has also managed some ways to deal with its environmental problems. I mean, if you look at pictures of Tokyo from the 1960s compared to today, it's like night and day. In fact, if you look at pictures from Tokyo in the 1960s, it looks like uh, pictures of Beijing or uh, various parts of uh, western China now where it's very hazy and you can't see very far. So I think there's still hope, obviously, uh, for things to change. But it, it, the issue really struck me as we begin to dig in on into – how big of a seller instant ramen became in China, and being a, a an aficionado of, of trains in China. And you take these long – well, until recently, one took long-haul journeys before they had the high-speed rail. And you know these could last anywhere from 18 to 25 hours. And you would invariably have a bowl or two of instant uh, ramen in your styrofoam bowl. And uh, the train lady would come through and she'd collect all of it very nicely and sweep, put it in a plastic bag. And then she'd wait. Uh, and then when you were in the middle of nowhere, she'd open the side door and throw it out. And I thought, wow, okay. And um, you know, the Chinese have a word for this. It's called the white trash pollution problem and uh it's become a big problem the chinese are eating uh, more fast food and they are enjoying the sales of this japanese product and in some ways this is a a, a consequence that i think no one could have envisioned what happens when the Jap- when the chinese begin to enjoy japanese food in a way that they never did historically i don't think uh sushi and sashimi run into such problems but produced prepackaged food does and it it ties into this other element of exchange of food between Japan and China in other ways. For example, um, a lot of prepackaged frozen food in Japan is being imported from China. And over the years, uh, some of this food has been found to have been tainted with various chemicals. So as both nations in some ways change the very ways or their concepts of what constitutes a Japanese meal or a Chinese meal and begin to mix and match and share more produced foods, uh, an evolution of environmental degradation has occurred. I think both parties, and and they're aware of it uh, uh, in, in China and Japan, I'm not necessarily sure that they're dealing with it in the same manner, but it is an outgrowth of the way in which we now eat, even though the Japanese continually talk about their healthy uh, lifestyle in the four seasons and the freshness and whatnot. What they often forget, of course, is that instant ramen plays a large role internationally. And in some ways, they're responsible for that change.
1: And I think this is in many ways a perfect note um, to, to move to a conclusion on because it's um, it's a great example of not only the ways that this narrative about this this seemingly sort of individual object, right, is extraordinarily broad ranging, but also the ways that the history and ethnography that you've offered us here of this bowl of noodles straddles so many different fields and so many different. Um, not just academic and sort of historical fields, but also has really wide ranging ramifications um, as a story that I think will will still um, be seeing the uh, the outcomes of in the years to come. <laughs>
0: yeah well that 's one of the reasons it was hard to write things for the are for the, for the for the very uh, elements that you described
1: so Barack now that um, well we've we 've had this discussion, um, there are so many elements in this book that we didn 't even begin to touch on it 's an extraordinarily rich story and in the space of an hour um, there 's no way that we covered all of the, the including some very very fascinating aspects of this story is there anything in particular um, that we didn't cover, but that you'd especially like to point out for listeners, especially perhaps listeners who haven't yet had a chance to see the book or to read it?
0: Uh, there's no one moment in particular. I did write the book so that each chapter can be used individually, mm-hmm. uh, and. If one is not interested in the early part of the history, then you can skip to the middle or just skip to the last popular history chapter. So it's written in a sense to be easily divided up into 10 different portions like a tasty cake.
1: <laughs> Great. So now that the book is out, and again, congratulations on that. What's Thank you. Ne- What's next for you? Um, what project or projects is or are currently inspiring you at the moment?
0: Well, I uh, was quite lucky this last year. I think uh, many of us apply for uh, several grants all at the same time, and I happened to hit the mother load. So I'm finishing a book on Japanese war crimes in China. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at uh, 1945 to 1965. And in a sense, that grows out of ramen now. I'm continuing to be interested in what happens to Chinese in Japan and, of course, Japanese uh, in China. I've gone bit back uh, to to the war and the post-war. And that project turned into a much larger project. And I was uh, fortunate to receive a a 1.2 million pound grant that will uh, allow uh, two PhD students and four postdocs to come onto my project, and we're going to look at the dissolution of the Japanese Empire and the search for justice. So looking at East Asia, uh, what happens after the Japanese Empire falls, because I think a lot of time the story has not been told in a post-imperial way, but it immediately moves to a post-war narrative, and the two are a bit different.
1: Well, congratulations on Thanks. that. Thanks. Um, best of luck with that project. And I'll look forward to talking to you again when that project um, emerges in book form as well.
0: I will look forward to that as well. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Barack. Cheers. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.